Hi, this is Ian Wolfe, producer, host and writer for Diffusion Science Radio. I need your support. You can support Diffusion by downloading a free Audible audiobook from audibletrial.com science. Just for getting you to try them out, Audible will pay me a small reward. Or you could click on an Amazon link on diffusionradio.com and Amazon will kick a few percent of what you pay them my way. Please, make a donation directly with the PayPal button on www.diffusionradio.com. Diffusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, vaccination fraud and electricity wars. But first up, Here's the news. The Sydney Mini Maker Fair is back for 2015. On the weekend of the 15th and 16th of August, the Powerhouse Museum will be hosting the family-friendly Sydney Mini Maker Fair for makers, tinkers, crafters, hackers and fixers to show off their creations and show visitors how to make them. There'll be professionals and hobbyists. Programmable LED goggles, model rockets, quadcopters, electronics, 3D printers, electric cars, bacterial terrariums, glowing cakes, mood-reading clothes, robots, toy-bending electronic music with talks and workshops to let you join in. There'll be events for kids of all ages as well as events aimed at adults. In the US, Make Affairs are run by Make Magazine, with Make Affairs outside the US licensing the format and name as Mini Make Affairs. The Mini Make Affair is to Make Affairs what TEDx is to TED Talks. This will be Sydney's third Mini Make Affair and it will be run as part of the Sydney Science Festival. Go to makeaffairsydney.com to find out more. The Sydney Science Festival used to be the Ultimo Science Festival, but this year it will stretch to all of Sydney from August 13th to August 23rd. Some highlights coming up will be astronaut Chris Hadfield, astrophysicist, author and presenter of the new Cosmos TV show, Neil deGrasse Tyson, food forensics workshops, human forensics workshops, talks on cutting-edge alternative power generation for Sydney, citizen science for high schools, the Einstein Lecture, sponsored by the Australian Institute of Physics on the 14th of August, tours of working science labs, Plant Bank Open Day, Science Speed Meeting, Stargazing, Aboriginal Astronomy, Take a Trip to Mars with Sydney artist Adam Norton, who's brought it here, Explode Everything with Explode It Science Workshops, Electronics for Girls, The Glow Show, and Aquanaut Adventures. Go to sydneyscience.com.au to book your place at these amazing events. Remember, places are limited, even at the free ones. And I'll be there interviewing everyone willing to talk. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. 
Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. At 6pm on Friday the 14th of August, the 10th annual Einstein Lecture will be given as part of the Sydney Science Festival at the Powerhouse Museum. This year's speaker is Dr Ken Silburn, Head Teacher of Science at Kasula High School and President of LASDA, the Metropolitan Southwest Science Teachers Association. I began by asking Ken what the theme of his talk will be about. I suppose it's, it's basically looking at the history of science and the personality of, of the, well, the personalities involved in that history and, and how over the last probably 200 years we've changed the way which we deal with things. Because when you think about it, 200 years ago, life was a lot different from what it was now. So what sort of things have changed? I suppose, I mean, technology is the, the big thing. I mean, I, I talk about records and cassette tapes to my classes, and sometimes you get this vague look back when, when kids haven't seen them or used those in, in their, their history. Because you know, if it's happened in the last 13 years, or anything before that, that's, that's old. So science 200 years ago, there weren't a lot of ordinary people getting into science. Was it mainly aristocrats? Uh, look, most definitely. Um, you had to have money. If you actually had a good idea, you still had the mo- You needed that money to get that idea basically published. And if it's not in the, if it's not published, we don't know about it. So that there could have been um, scientists that were excellent, but if we don't know what they did, then as far as we're concerned, it never happened. Peer review is one of those things that they didn't have 200 years ago. In fact, it's something that I think struck Einstein as a bit wrong. You're right. Back in those days, it was a case of if you had an idea and if you could get it published, um, there was a lot of debate on scientific issues. And sometimes, I mean, they didn't have that vast amount of information that they could delve into. So you could probably say, okay, back in those days, it was very difficult. But nowadays, um, it's crucial for any science. Uh, if you've got a paper, it has to be critically reviewed. And we've, we've seen recent problems with that. With, for example, Andrew Wakefield and, um, and the way that he's, he's so-called evidence from a paper he wrote 15 years ago, which was proven to be wrong. It's, it's still being used by some people to promote the idea of why we shouldn't vaccinate children. So for the listeners, Andrew Wakefield published a paper saying that the triple vaccine, that it was mumps, measles and... And, and polio. And he actually, his paper linked that into yeah, autism, yes. So he published a paper saying that the triple vaccine caused autism, or at least was strongly linked with children getting autism. And as a result, a lot of people didn't want to get their kids vaccinated. And what's happened since with that? Well, since then, we've got a lot of people, and I'll probably call these people crackpots, because they've got an idea, but they just don't want to listen to to anybody that's that's got a scientific background. And they've they've got their idea that, no, I don't want my children to be vaccinated because it's a conspiracy. However, if you look at the top four um, things that have happened over the last 150 years, 
as far as medical breakthroughs that are saving lives. Well, you've got vaccinations, you've got um, sanitation, you've got um, anaesthetic. Um, so these things are very important. And Andrew Wakefield's methods were found to be faulty, weren't they? Yes. It was unfortunate that his paper was peer-reviewed by two reviewers, but they didn't delve into his method and, and they didn't look at the, the bias with his results too. So there was a conflict of interest? Oh, most definitely. Um, he had a, a company that was um, promoting the use of a vaccine, which was just a, a single dose for, for measles. And if he could scare away people from using the opposition, then that was more money for him. And as a result, he was drummed out of the medical profession. But we still have people that, that say, no, this was a scientific paper, so they take it as being proof. It's one of those things that's very hard to change people's minds, I guess. It's one of those, those things. But I, in 200 years ago, they didn't even have that level of review. I guess if you just published it, it was true. There was that no review. And, and you could publish a paper, but there were debates taking place. Um, we hear of you know, the famous debates about evolution and because the entertainment back then, we didn't have TV, we didn't have radio. So a lot of the things were either on paper or verbal as debates. And listeners, just a warning that the remaining parts of the interview include stories that contain potentially disturbing adult themes. On the topic of vaccination, one of the earliest pioneers of vaccination was Edward Jenner. Oh, look, um, Edward Jenner, he's, he's looked upon as being the father that's, that created that whole science. When I was saying about you know, things back then being different, um, I mean, 200 years ago, um, you know, the 1890s, um, there was outbreaks of smallpox. Now, if you, if you actually suffered from smallpox, you basically died. And, and it wasn't a nice, quick death. It was a very painful, very ugly death. So back in those days, if you knew of an outbreak of smallpox, then life would just stop. People would not go outside. Um, you'd be very wary of whatever you did. Um, Edward Jenner was apparently talking to one of his milkmaids um, who, who actually said that she didn't have any problem with smallpox because she'd had cowpox. Now, the actual virus is very similar. So if you have smallpox, or let's say you, you actually suffer from cowpox, then if you get infected then with smallpox, your body has already got an immunity to cowpox. So it zaps straight away at the virus. And as a result, you, you, you will still get sick, but you're not going to die. So he actually thought, oh, this might be true. So he actually went and um, being a big landowner, he had lots of employers and people in the village that worked for him and asked one of, or basically got one of the, the sons of one of his gardeners, had him infected and with smallpox and he survived. And you look back, and I mean, there's no way we, we would ever think about doing that. You know, it's just so unethical. Because you think, what if he was wrong? 
Um, but he survived. And the story is that he then went to the village and got another nine children and did the same thing to them. They all survived. So therefore he found the cure for smallpox. No animal experiments. No. And, um, and it was, wasn't until I think the 1960s that the World Health Organization was able to totally eradicate smallpox. And that's, that's saved so many lives. So looking at the, the history of science, there's also the story of AC versus DC. Oh, look, that's one of the big battles that, that happened back in the, the 1890s. And, I mean, we just take it for granted when we, we plug in something into the, into the electricity socket that you know, things will work. And, and if it wasn't for electricity, I mean, our life would be really bad. Um, I mean, electricity has opened up everything, so we've got things that work 24 hours a day, we've got so many, so many inventions, everything to do with communication now, with computers. You know, if you don't have electricity, it just doesn't work. But if you go back to, you know, when I, I talk about things being different, in the 1890s, when you had Edison and you had Westinghouse that created um, electricity, from the supply point of view, that was a big step forward because prior to that we had people who were were playing with electricity and they were doing small experiments but Edison and Westinghouse they had the idea that they could sell it so we had the light bulb um, which was invented and if you look at any any book it would probably say that Edison was the person that invented the light bulb but it was actually invented years and years beforehand but Edison had the research that was able to actually basically perfect it. So um, we had better vacuum pumps, better electrical supplies, um, a better filament. So we had a, a, better, a better product. Now Edison, his idea was that not to make money out of light bulbs, but to make money out of selling the electricity. Now his electricity supply was DC, direct current. Now that's what we normally get when we plug it, when we just use batteries. On the opposing side of that, we had Westinghouse, and Westinghouse, he produced AC electricity. Now, they were both new, and they both worked. There was a bit of a problem though with Edison that for DC electricity, you had to have your generator rather close to the, the supply for where you needed it. AC electricity, though, you can actually put it over a very large distance. And it's probably cheaper, too, because you don't have to have as much copper. And it just works better that way. But Edison was a businessman, and his idea was to make money out of his inventions. And he wanted to make money out of selling DC electricity. Now, things were different back then, and... The way which we communicate and our values were very, very different. So back then, there was a, a few things that happened which were, which probably would have gone in Edison's favour. And that was the, the death penalty, for example. They, they decided that to kill someone by hanging, that was inhumane. And they had quite a few times where, where people would, would be executed, but... But it would go wrong. Either the body would go too far, too fast, and, and separate from the head, which doesn't look at all good. 
or even worse, you'd have the person who would be hanging but, but dying from suffocation. So there was this big push to, to no longer um, execute people by hanging. And, but a dentist actually witnessed a hobo being electrocuted and thought, ah, this is the way forward. Now we can actually humanely kill people using electricity. So Edison was, would apparently have either himself or he would, he would have his employees going to country towns, getting dogs, and he would connect up the dog or the food bowl for the dog with electricity. And he would do, look at this, 100 volts DC, 200, go up to 500 volts DC, and the dog would yelp. But then at 150 volts AC, the dog would die. And, I mean, that's we would never do that nowadays. I mean, you'd be locked up in prison. It's the ultimate attack ad, isn't it? Saying, look, our power, relatively safe, their power kills dogs. And not just killing dogs, you know, kills people. So Edison actually paid newspaper reporters that if ever somebody was to be killed by electricity to use the term that they'd been Westinghoused. And even when they decided, or they, they came up with the invention of the electric chair, when that first happened, Westinghouse was totally against it because they wanted to use AC electricity. And he refused point blankly for, for them to use his generators. Now Edison actually sourced a, a generator so it could be used. And Westinghouse then paid for the appeal for the first man that was going to be executed, which they lost. But it was actually a, an awful story about the, the first time that the, the, the first person was executed, William, William Kemmler. And back then things were, you know, he'd, he'd killed someone. And um, so he was sentenced to death and they placed him on the electric chair, placed sponges that were soaked in salt on his arms, his legs and his head. And, and it was all very sedate. He, he had a few passing words to say that, you know, that he was going to a better place and accepted what was going to happen to him. And they, they flicked the switch. He went into convulsions. And then the, there were three doctors that were actually watching. They, they turned off the electricity. They stopped the stopwatch. One of the doctors looked at him and said, uh, you know, it's obvious that because of the, the colour of his face and his nose that he's dead. And then they actually noticed there was a bit of bleeding, uh, which then that meant if, he's, if there's bleeding from his arm, then there must be a pulse. And then he, he started to gasp for air. And they thought, oh, this isn't good. So for something which was going to be a humane death, then they took the sponges off re-soaked them, placed it back on and flicked the switch and then they waited until they could smell that he was actually cooking. But, um, but that was what, I mean, things were different back then. And there's, there's even stories, I mean, I was, I was talking about the, the dogs being you know, executed. There was, there was actually a story about an elephant in Sydney, we've got Luna Park, and part of Luna Park has got Coney Island. The entertainment back in the 1890s, well, we didn't have TV, so a lot of the entertainment was, was going out. So you'd go to, go to a place. So, um, 
that you could have picnics, you could go for places that would be like Coney Island. Now, Coney Island had a little park called Luna Park, and they used to use elephants, just like we would use a bulldozer or just to move things around. There was one elephant called Topsy, who apparently had had killed um, two people, and one person being its trainer. Now, there's a, a few different stories as to you know, whether he had actually ill-treated Topsy, but the fact is, this elephant had, had killed someone. Now, things being different back then, the owners of Luna Park decided this animal's killed someone, let's charge it with murder. So they had a court case, and I don't know who would have been on the elephant's side, but they actually convicted it of murder. So what do you do? Well, they decided they would build the world's biggest gallows so they could hang it. And at the time, the ASPCA, which is equivalent to the, the RSPCA in Australia, they actually said, no, you can't do that anymore because we don't even do that for humans. So they tried to poison it, but along for, to the rescue was Edison. And um, you can even search on, the, on Google and you can find the original footage of where they actually executed this elephant. Um, probably not a th- nice thing to watch, but it's but it's there. Was this an actual state court, or was this a special court that Luna Park put together? I think it was. We, we might call it a kangaroo court, but but it was just a, a thing, just to, so they could sell tickets. Right, kangaroo court for elephants. Yes. On with um, electricity. Benjamin Franklin. There's some stories about his early time with electricity. That's correct. Like with Benjamin Franklin, there's there's stories about whether he was actually the the person that did the first experiment. As far as that that, that famous flying the kite experiment, he did actually talk about it, and he wrote down in a, in a paper that was published in 1750 about the fact that you could do this, and that he was proposing to do the experiment. So can I just can I ask you, he was going to fly a kite in a thunderstorm and something to do with having a key on the wet string and something about catching lightning in a jar? Yes, he's, the, the story goes, if we, if we take it that the story was that he did do the experiment, then the story is that he flew the kite and it was as a thunderstorm was approaching and he had the kite then wired coming from the kite down to a key and that key was then tied with silk and he was able to hold the end of the silk. Now, some stories say that when he did the experiment, he he was actually able to get sparks to jump from the key to his finger and then that he'd placed that key into a glass jar and announced to people, look, I've now got electricity. Um, I mean, that's one of the stories, and because that was so long ago, I mean, that was back in the 1750s, now, we don't know for, for sure whether that was the actual story, but that's, that's one of the stories that's, that's, that's been put forward. But it was in um, 1752, over in, I think it was France, that there was an experiment where somebody did it with a, a 12-metre pole, 
um, instead of flying a kite, was able to get sparks generated. And there was a Russian that did the same experiment and was killed because the electricity going straight down to, to the key and straight to his head. And it wasn't totally unreasonable. I mean, okay, you can't store electricity in a key and then put it in a jar, but didn't they have sort of large capacitors called Leyden jars in those days? Yes, yep. So there were a lot of these experiments going on um, with, with high voltage that they were able to, to collect. The, the one thing, though, it was more of a gimmick, more of a, of a novelty type thing rather than, than finding a use for it. Benjamin Franklin would have been a nice guy to have met, and, and I think he'd be probably the, the life of the party. You know, as well as being a statesman, being very, very articulate, very up there with what was happening, he was very heavily involved in the, the writing of the, the Declaration of Independence. However, I've, I heard that he was actually in, involved in the writing of it, but they didn't want him to do it because they thought he would have slipped in a joke. But, I mean, his, his education, he, I think he actually was educated to um, 10 years of age, and all of the rest of his, of his education basically came from reading. That was Dr Ken Silburn, who'll be giving the 10th annual Einstein lecture at the Powerhouse Museum on the 14th of August. You can buy tickets for only $7 at sydneyscience.com.au. Ken Silburn will discuss scientific theories, how misconceptions are generated, how public opinion is manipulated, and other issues of interest to the modern citizen of planet Earth. You can hear part two of this interview next week. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on Diffusion? Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me some emails so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. And a special thank you to Andrew from Melbourne for his regular monthly donation. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including 2 Triple H in Hornsby, Kringai, 2NVR in Nambucca Valley, 2XX in Canberra, and 3NBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for more information about this week's show. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. 
In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.